Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. Ooh, can you say Ursus Americanus luteolius? Lute no. Yeah, Ursus. Ursus. Americanus. Americanus. Luteolus. 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 Yeah, that's the Louisiana black bear, one of 16 subspecies of the American black bear, and it's found in parts of Louisiana, mostly along the Mississippi River Valley and the Atchafalaya River Basin. Maria Davidson. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well this morning. Thanks for calling. No problem. My name is Maria Davidson. I'm the Large Carnivore Program Manager for the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. What does that mean exactly? That includes black bear and cougars for all intents and purposes. Louisiana doesn't have a cougar population. So what that means for the program is just we handle cougar calls or cougar sightings. We document any occurrences, things like that. But black bears are really more like opportunistic omnivores. Omnivore means they omni means all. So they eat all sorts of things, eaters of plants and animals. And their diet is largely determined by what food they can find. The most readily available food for black bears tends to be high in carbohydrates and low in fat or protein, although they prefer high fat and high protein foods when they can get it. Is that the black bears, well all black bears are classified as carnivores, you're correct, but in, in biology or in their behavior, they're, you're correct, an opportunistic omnivore, meaning that they investigate their surroundings and will really take advantage of anything that's available which is one of the reasons that they are such a curious animal. If you're going to be opportunistic as a way to survive, then you also have to be curious and investigate any and everything in order to survive. The Louisiana black bear um, truly declined all the way through 1992, mostly because of habitat degradation and loss. And then in 1992, it was listed by the Fish and Wildlife Service as threatened. And different organizations, agencies, and nonprofits began working towards um, research and exactly what it would take to recover the species through a federal program, uh, the conservation programs monitored through USDA. WRP was put back into place and CRP, which is the reforestation of much of the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. The replacement of the habitat is, is really what probably more than anything else, as well as protections, led to the recovery of the Louisiana black bear in the, the alluvial valley, the Mississippi alluvial valley, valley in Louisiana. All of the Mississippi parishes, all the way up almost to the Arkansas line, and all the way down to St. Mary and Iberia parishes are where you can find bears. We originally had three subpopulations, one in Tensaw, one in Point Capi, and one down in St. Mary. Then in 1990, the agencies worked collaboratively, and we began a relocation project to develop a fourth subpopulation to encourage genetic interchange between the two northern subpopulations. So for nine years, we moved females with their cubs out of their winter dens into the Three Rivers complex area, which is right centered around the Richard K. Yancey Wildlife Management Area. Over that time frame, we moved 48 females and 104 cubs. So that seeded a population there that that encouraged genetic exchange through this, this hopscotch-type um, system from the Point Capi population up to Tensaw and then back the other way as well. So with all of that, 
we began some, doing some population viability work to not only create some estimates so we knew how many bears we had in Louisiana, but also exactly um, how many bears would it take to meet the benchmark that the Fish and Wildlife Service had set forth, which was 95% chance of survivability over 100 years. You know, what exactly that meant in terms of population numbers is something we had to determine and then figure out how to meet, which we have now done. You know, through some modeling work with Dr. Joe Clark with the University of Tennessee, we determined that female survival needed to be right around 90% or greater in order to meet that benchmark. And this is all, of course, post-delisting after the populations recovered to the point that the Fish and Wildlife Service could delist, then full management was then given back to LDWF, which happened in the spring of 2016. You know, since that time, we have continued to monitor the populations. We began hair snare work um, pre-delisting, so we began back in 07, 06, and we have continued to this day. So in Tensaw, we have 15 consecutive years of non-invasive sampling, and in Point Capay, just one year less. So we, we have a great data set for these subpopulations in order to provide us information on not only how they're doing, but enables us to project how they will do into the future. So the black bear is a large, bulky animal with long, black hair and a short, well-haired tail. Their weight can vary considerably, but males may weigh more than 600 pounds. Their faces are blunt with small eyes and a nose pad that's really broad with large nostrils. The muzzle is usually a yellowish-brown with a white patch sometimes present on the lower throat and chest. Black bears have five toes with short, curved claws on the front and back feet. The, the hair samples are collective non-invasively through hair snares, which is simply two strands of barbed wire around three trees, and you bait in the middle of it. So you check that once a week, and you pull your hair samples, and you run those hair samples, you genotype them. Basically, it provides you a, an individual bear for that catch and then you model that to determine numbers okay wow and you also um have some bears that are radio collared or tagged so that you can track them as well right we do so we do this somewhat parallel work it allows us to double check ourselves back and forth you would expect or hope that those um, indices would look the same on either side and because um, DNA work is such a lengthy process in terms of collecting it one summer, getting it sent to the lab, then the results have to come back, be formatted and analyzed, there's quite the turnaround on that. So um, doing telemetry work on radio collared bears is not that time intensive. You get those answers much more quickly. So we wanted to just be able to double check ourselves. So we currently have you know, upwards of 10 collars per subpopulation. We have around 50 to 55 bears collared at any one time. The reason we do that is we want to be able to track um, not only female survival, but sources of mortality. We want to be able to go into their dens and track their reproduction efforts and then also collect genetic samples from their cubs. So a family unit would generally just be the mom and um, two cubs? Well, family the family unit, unit is ever-changing. So a female is um, an estrus and she breeds during the summertime with males that she will likely, you know, generally not, not see again. And then in the denning season, in the wintertime, somewhere around January, maybe late December, she'll enter her winter den and give birth to her cubs and she'll stay in her den till 
you know, March or April. She'll emerge with her cub of the year, which is a little five, you know, five, six pound cub. And she will keep that, those cubs with her all year long. They will den together that following winter. And then when they emerge the next spring, it won't be very long after they emerge from their den, those cubs will then be on their own and begin to leave their mom. You know, at that point, she will tend to somewhat aggressively run off her male cubs. Female cubs oftentimes can can stay fairly close by and continue a loose association with their mother, not be right there close to her, but definitely within her home range or just next door. So female cubs stay stay pretty close. So then... That following summer, she, that summer she will also come back into heat. So a family unit is forever evolving. Okay. You know, I, through her reproductive cycle. And how long does it take a um, a young female bear cub to start her reproductive cycle? You know, as in all animals, puberty is, or you know, is based on reaching mature weight, and so it can depend upon the habitat those animals are in. And if you have really good habitat where the animals are growing very quickly and putting on sufficient fat, then she can begin cycling and even breed at two years old. But that's not the average. It's usually a little bit older. And and just like a lot of animals, when very young females breed, it can sometimes take them a time or two to be able to figure it all out. They may not successfully raise the litter. Now, there's there's a lot of obstacles to successfully getting a cub from born in the, the winter den to successfully wean them off at a year and a half. So it may take a female a time or two to be able to figure it out. Yeah. But if, you know, if she's in good habitat and she's in good shape, um, you know, she should have cubs every other year. What they do, bears have mark trees as part of marking territory. So they'll they'll stand and rub their scent glands and their fur on a tree. And, and if you find a tree, I've seen some videos and stills and things of, you know, cameras placed on those trees. And every bear that comes by it will do the same thing. They'll, they'll rub and leave their scent on it. than other species in terms of the amount of conflict that they can create because it goes back to them being an opportunistic omnivore. They will take advantage of anything that's edible, and that includes deer corn or agriculture or garbage or pet food, livestock food, all, you know, all of the above. So, of course, that brings them into conflict. So LDWF has an active program where we go out and respond to people's calls about issues with bears and first attempt to resolve it by changing the people's behavior. If, if the issue is pet food on the porch or um, cooking grease in the backyard or unsecured garbage, you know, whatever the issue is, in order to address it successfully, we have to address it with the human component of, of, this conflict and they have to change their behavior before we can change the bear's behavior. You know, um, an old retired colleague of mine has always said, you you cannot teach a bear not to eat. (laughs) And, and I always remember that when trying to resolve these long-term conflicts, they always resolve around a bear seeking something to eat always. So if you can remove that attractant, that's job one. So that that's where we go to first. And then, you know, if it's required and there's nothing else we can do with the situation, we will trap the bear. And then, then we have a couple of different um, options available to us. The one that we try to do most often would be to haze the bear from on site, you know, create a negative experience and couple that with the removal of the attractant in the hopes that it will change that bear's behavior to the extent that makes him an acceptable citizen and we can move forward. 
if the bear is within the age class of an animal that tends to be dispersing and traveling great distances anyway, and maybe doesn't have a home range that he's become loyal to yet, like a, a young sub-adult male, we might choose to relocate that bear, you know, up into our Three Rivers area. And, you know, other than that, the options become very limited. You know, there people have a tendency to want us to just take care of their problem and make it go away. And, and there's this misconception that you can just trap a bear and relocate it, which, of course, is not, not the way it works. That, that, that just doesn't happen. It's just not the way it works. It's a lot more complicated than that. And in that vein, we began working with the... Southeastern Association of Wildlife Agencies through the Large Carnivore Working Group, and we created a uh, education program anchored by a website called BearWise. It was created by the 16 Southeastern State Bear Biologists, so it's all purely factual information, and it's come a long way. It's a great website. Um, it's meant to be a one-stop shopping in terms of you have a question about a bear, you have a question about a bear issue or bear conflict, or you have a problem with a bear at your house or your camp or, you know, fill in the blank. You can go on bearwise.org and, and get that get that question answered. Louisiana, like most states, has struggled with how to change the public's behavior in terms of bears. And, and bringing these, those resources together and combining them has, has really been a great thing so far. And I think that it's going to go a lot further before it's done. And, and creating a public knowledge and awareness of what we need to do in order to minimize and or resolve human bear conflict. So that's where we're really focusing our efforts while continuing to manage conflicts basically as they happen here in Louisiana. Oh gosh, I've been with the department 25 years, and I guess I've been working on bears about 20 of that. Is that what you, uh, so what's your background? What did you study in college that got you to where you are now? I have a, a bachelor's degree in agriculture, basically animal science, and then I moved over and got a master's degree and actually graduated in a vocational education degree, and but took enough biology hours to have a, a minor in biology. <laughs> and what is it that's so, in, so did you want to work with black bears or did you just end up working with black bears? Um, I, I always, wanted to work with animals and then beyond that it was always large carnivores before I worked for the department uh, I worked for a number of years in zoos and zoo management and and large carnivores were always a passion for me it was always something that I was more interested in than anything else and when I, I moved back from one of my, my zoo careers back to Louisiana working on something that that was closer to home and had more conservation um, effort I think made sense to me so I applied to the department and was hired you have to have some small soft spot for the the animal at this point right oh <laughs> I mean what do you like about the it's, animal I'm it's curious. much beyond a small spot for sure you know bears Black bears, grizzly bears, polar bears, all of them are, are just an amazing taxon. And, you know, the, the time I've been able to spend with bears is, is very special to me and, and, and important to me and something I will treasure forever. And then beyond that, being a part of a recovery success story is the highlight of my career and always will be. There, there will never be anything to replace that. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, in the beginning of this, I have worked in different geographical areas in Louisiana and personally witnessed the range expansion and subsequently the recovery of subpopulations and a population of animals that, that is 
the highlight of my career, for sure. For more information about, you know, the Louisiana Bear Program, people can go to our website, which is wlf.louisiana.gov. If they want to learn more about human-bear conflict or ways to coexist with bears, things of that nature, good examples and suggestions, bearwise.org is a great resource. My name is Joseph Clark, or Joe Clark. I'm a research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. I work with the Northern Rocky Mountain Science Center. It's located in Bozeman, Montana, but my field station is at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, which is in East Tennessee, not not too far from the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So I do a lot of work on bears, and, uh, and some other species as well, mostly large mammals. But my primary focus has been on black bears. Right. I've, been, I've been working, I've been doing that now for uh, over 25 years, going on 30 years, I guess. Well, the, this is a rapidly, the, the, the way Louisiana black bears are different from other bears is a rapidly changing uh area of science um you know a lot of the subspecies uh that have been around for years and years and years were based on some limited samples of skins and skulls and other things uh and probably the most uh recognized uh, uh, tax, uh taxonomic uh work comes from hall and um uh, that's where the 16 subspecies were were uh, 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 developed. And so over the years, people have looked at that and they've compared skull morphologies and those sorts of things and, uh, you know, verified some of the subspecies and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, we know now that uh, an animal's morphology or their uh, shape and form is governed a lot by the habitat where they're where they reside. So, you know, animals that have a readily available food supply are going to be bigger. You know, they're going to have different body dimensions than other species somewhere else. And a lot of times uh, also there's just um, some uh, similarities by as a result of anim- animals being isolated by distance. And so, you know, over the years that you get some similarities within populations as well. And the most more recent genomic analysis of uh, the American black bear tends to want to loop, uh, lump um, the Louisiana black bear as well as the Florida black bear um, and the uh, eastern black bear or the American black bear into one subspecies group. So it may be that they're not a different they're, they're they're not that unique uh subspecifically you know they're uh, they've been characterized as having kind of a long narrow skull uh compared to some of the other bear species but you know that may be just part of their environment or maybe just part of the region of the country you know where they're at uh, they may not you know f- from a genetic standpoint they may not be that much different than uh black bears all over the eastern United States. So, yeah, I mean, you know, these taxonomic designations are so, you know, it's sort of uh, created by man, for man. Whether it means a lot biologically, we don't know. The truth is, though, that we have this, you know, several small populations of bears that are isolated and have, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, evidence that there's some inbreeding going on. The, Population uh, is small from a demographic standpoint, so um, you know that that means that if they're whether they're a unique subspecies or not, they deserve uh, 
our protection and our ability to try to recover those populations. And so it's sort of moot in a way uh, because we're going to do everything that we can to try to uh, help those populations along anyway. I was the bear biologist with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission at the time of listing. And so I had attended some of the early meetings, you know, to discuss what was going to be done about that and that sort of thing. So I've got a long history with the Louisiana black bear and its management. You know, we say my research, really this work involves a whole lot of different people. Lots of students and technicians over the years, uh, a lot of work done by Dr. Mike Pelton and his students that came along before me. A lot of work by folks like Maria with the uh, Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and Paul Davidson, you know, with the Black Bear Conservation Committee. All of those people had a lot to do with uh, getting a bear management program off the ground. And uh, when I came over to USGS in 93, I think, it's been a long time and I'm getting older and so, uh, you know, every day is sort of a new day to me, but uh, so it's hard to re- remember that far back. It's been a long time and Maria contacted me about starting this uh, work in Louisiana to try to determine, you know, where the population stood and what needed to be done and how we could assess whether it was recovered. Um, and, you know, there were endangered species questions and and uh, that kind of thing, uh, you know, that the state was under, um, you know, the uh, auspices of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to try to manage this endangered species. And uh, they were, you know, interested in getting it taken off of the endangered species list, if appropriate. But, I, you know, my goal has always been just to provide these agencies with the very best science I could to help them make that decision. And, uh, you know, for me, recovery was always more important than delisting. And I think that's probably the case for most of the other individuals that have been involved with this, too. Currently, most Louisiana black bears live within four areas of Louisiana, including St. Mary and Iberia parishes in South Louisiana, Point Coupee Parish in Central Louisiana, the Richard K. Yancey Wildlife Management Area in nearby Concordia, and Avoyles parishes in East Central Louisiana, and Tinsaw, Madison, and West Carroll parishes in Northeast Louisiana. You may also see bears in um, areas outside of this range, as male bears sometimes wander long distances from the area of their birth. You know, yeah, it was um, a lot of hot work in the summertime with water moccasins and rattlesnakes and mosquitoes. And then in the wintertime, cold weather, uh, usually they, a lot of times these bears would den in big cypress trees, which means you have to get to them in a boat and uh, then climb the tree. Some of, some of the times the cavities and the bears in them were, uh, I mean, you think about a bear in a tree, you think about them, you know, in a hole in the tree 10 feet off the ground. Uh, uh-uh. They're a lot of times up really high. So we had some bears that were probably 80 or 90 feet off the ground uh, that we had to climb and, and get them out and lower them with ropes. And thank God for graduate students, uh, that were very skilled with climbing and uh, very fearless. Um, it was uh, it was really something to see. Um, we had a clear goal. You know, we wanted to try to uh, recover this species. Uh, in, in a way, we had some things going for us. The bears themselves were pretty resilient. Um, the habitat, in a lot of places around the around the world, the habitat's gone and it's not coming back. And that's not the case in Louisiana. Um, you know, when I first started going to Louisiana, it was uh, small islands, bottomland hardwoods, isolated in a sea of, of soybeans. And today, because of the wetland uh, reserve program and conservation reserve program and other programs, um, a lot of that, a lot of those fields are being converted back to 
natural vegetation. Oak trees are being planted, and you've got, um, you know, uh, just fields years ago that are now growing up. Pretty good size um, little oak trees in them. They're probably not producing much food at, at, at the present, but they are providing a matrix that these bears can use to travel across the landscape that they didn't have before. So the habitat for black bears in Louisiana definitely has uh, has recovered. I think there's a lot of public support. You know, people complain about bears a lot, but a lot of people appreciate them too. Maybe not the the vocal, uh, the most vocal people, but a lot of people do. recapture something that we hadn't done much of in Louisiana in the past but we're starting to do more of it we just completed a big study in to estimate the bear population size in the whole southern Appalachian region 16 million acres and we did that with about 900 of those hair traps that I that sounds like a big number but not when you think about this large four state area and that's sort of what we're going to what we're doing in Louisiana and also southern Arkansas and Mississippi to try to get a better picture of the bear population from a regional perspective because she's right you know the the surveys are just for those constrained populations within those uh, you know two or three areas Mm -hmm. and we really don't have a good handle on what's going on outside there and we expect that there is some expansion, and this work should help us document that if it's occurring. Well, the species as a whole, the, the, the American black bear is doing very, very well. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of black bears across the North American continent, all the way from Florida to Mexico up to Alaska and uh, uh, Ontario and, and Canadian provinces. So it's a widely distributed uh, population. Uh, But there are some trouble spots. And a lot of the trouble spots are here in the southeast for one reason or another. Probably a lot of it's agriculture because of our long growing season. And a lot of the habitat's been lost, uh, you know, converting bottomland hardwoods to um, soybean production and uh, corn and other crops. Uh, here in the, the Tennessee area where I live, uh, bears are really only found in the mountains. And that's because those areas were too, too rugged um, for, for farming or for housing developments and that kind of thing. And so the bears, you know, used to live here in the Tennessee River Valley and all throughout the, the region. And they're now relegated to these inaccessible, rugged areas like uh, the Smoky Mountains or Okefenokee uh, Swamp or uh, these uh, small little bottomland hardwood places in Louisiana. So you've got these small populations that are isolated because of the habitat. And uh, once they become isolated like that, that's what makes them prone to uh, extinction. And there are several real small bear populations in Florida that are not doing well, um, South Alabama, you know, some other places where where conservationists are trying to help these populations along. And so, you know, most places in North America, black bears are doing great. Not so much in the southeast or down in Mexico. Um and in a few other places as well. But, but uh, so that's sort of the, the situation here. And that's sort of how the, the, why the Louisiana black bear has gained so much, you know, attention. It's, it's not because of the subspecies or anything. It's just a product of where it lives and the, the land management 
land use pressures that are bearing down. Right. Well, and, and we've done some work on with corridors as well, modeling how bears move across the landscape and um, uh, looking at um, different land management options there are for trying to link the populations in Louisiana. And the problem with bears is that the males move around great, but the females, not so much. Uh, a, a female cub can be born and grow up and stay within the home range of her mother her entire life. Mm-hmm. There's very little uh, pressure to force her out to disperse. And so if you've got nothing but males moving around, uh, you know, that's no way to establish a population with nothing but males. And so corridors for bears have a little bit, have, have kind of limited usefulness. You know, if you've got two two balloons that are expanding at vastly different rates, the males and the females. The females eventually get there. It just takes them a long time. And rather than travel corridors, it's much better, we think, to try to establish populations along the way, sort of like what we did with that stepping stone population. It's much better to do that and let the bears um, make it from one place to another at a much reduced distance than and have them rely on sticking with a corridor for a long, there's not a, there's not a lot of um, impetus for the females to move in those areas. And uh, even males, um, you know, they tend to uh, go all kinds of different directions. And so they're not real directed and they don't think much about going across a big open field or something like that. So it's sort of hard to haze them to go the direction that you want them to. One thing that we're looking at in the future is maybe some uh, genetics work. Uh, there may be some, may still be some inbreeding taking place in some of these populations. And so it may be useful to move animals from one subpopulation to another and not, not, not you know, um, let them do it them themselves but sort of in a human assisted way to try to establish maybe maybe in the same way that we did the original reintroduction you know by trapping females with their cubs but we want to make sure that we're putting the bears that we need in the right places and the and the populations that need those genes are getting them and so we really need to do a genomic analysis of the bear subpopulations in louisiana and elsewhere to see where the needs are. And so that's one thing that we're interested in. We don't, we haven't gotten the funding to do that work yet, but we're hopeful that uh, it's something that we can do in the future. And, it, um, you know, because this, this needs to be done in an informed way rather than just moving animals across the landscape, you know, like it was once done. some other cubs with her 
And I said, just grab it behind the back of the neck. The curb will kind of go stiff. Take the snare off his foot and let it go. And so he did that. He grabbed that bear behind the behind the back of the neck, and it just started screaming to the top of its lungs. And that mother bear, she stopped. Her ears went up, and she came running at me full force, as fast as a bear can run. And so I thought, well, okay, I've heard this works. Let's hope it does. And so I, I started screaming and waving my arms, and I ran at that bear as fast as I could. Oh. And when I did, she slammed on brakes, and she almost toppled over backwards. Uh, trying to stop and it was apparent that she had no intention of making contact with me it was a false charge that she was just trying to use to intimidate but when I showed some backbone you know she gave way and here we are out in the woods for all her all she knows you know we're we're killing her cub we're over there torturing her cub and even under that situation, she wouldn't, you know, they were, that she, she exhibited such tolerance for us that I thought, you know, uh, not to say that bears are always going to behave that way, but that's sort of their nature. And that's what I found. Very high. They must have a, a knack, the, that small pop, subpopulation down um, in the St. Mary Parish area must have a real knack for finding those old cypress trees. They can. They do, uh, and a lot of times they'll use the same ones. Um, you know, they're and those kinds of trees are not that plentiful anymore, so they're pretty valuable. You know where they occur, and it's not always cypress, but a lot of times it is. Uh, you know, it has to be a pretty good sized tree for a female to climb inside of it, and you know, be able to be concealed all winter long, keep the rain and elements off. But they're, they're uh, you know, seeing them go up a tree and crawl out on limbs and eat acorns and that kind of thing. I mean, they're just like a big overgrown squirrel. They're just as at home in the trees as anywhere. So, and that's true of just about any of them, uh, no matter what size. They're, de- they're definitely fascinating animals. And they, and they don't read these papers that we write because uh, they're always doing something different than what you expect. And I'm never surprised anymore. You know, somebody will call me and say, will say, would you believe a bear did so, so-and-so? And I always think, yeah. Yeah, I do believe it. Because I, I never cease to surprise me. My name is Paul Davidson, and for 25 years I was executive director of the Black Bear Conservation Coalition. Been very involved in a lot of conservation initiatives over the past 30 years. Yeah, when I first got out of college, and there really weren't any jobs in the mid-70s, uh, that many relative to wildlife, and so I went into crawfish farming and. Uh, did that for several years, and some things happened that, you know, people, midnight dumpers dumping into the canal that I pumped from that caused me to lose $100,000 worth of crawfish one year, uh, and that's what really got me involved in more environmental conservation stuff, was things were going on around me that were very uh, negative to, you know, having negative impacts on the environment. So I just started trying to see if I could make a difference. And I got I got hired by the people who started the BBCC, not because I knew anything about bears, it was just that I had a history of pulling diverse groups together to address uh, complex issues. And I, did, I worked a lot with air quality issues in Baton Rouge, uh, you know, sitting down with plant managers and environmentalists and members of the community to try to just see how, see what we could do. And uh, if you, you weren't here, but in the uh, late 80s, early 
EPA was threatening to uh, come down with some pretty strict restrictions on cars and everything else. So uh, it was important that some of the air quality issues be developed and, and uh, addressed. And when when the bear was listed in July of 1990, it was at the height of the conflict over the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest. And there was a legitimate fear that something like that could happen here. And, you know, the Endangered Species Act was getting a lot of negative press at the time. Uh, and a lot of misinformation was out there. But in the reality, the Endangered Species Act only has the potential to impact activities on federal land, on federally funded projects, or on federally permitted projects. 90% of the habitat in this region is privately owned, which means that the Endangered Species Act has the potential to impact very little. You know, theirs is what brought it all together, made it come to a head. Okay. But there was, there was nobody here who knew anything about bears anyway. And, you know, the reality is bears were a neglected species. You know, wildlife management historically has focused on species that can generate income for fish and wildlife agencies. So the priorities are put on white-tailed deer, waterfowl, turkeys, stuff like that, that where you can build populations, large populations, uh, and sell a lot of hunting lots. Working on black bear conservation as a way to improve conservation efforts over a large region essentially is what you did that sounds like but i but i was brought into the uh group not because of any expertise i had with bears it was really because i had a history of several years of history of bringing diverse interests together to address complicated issues and this was a complicated issue, and, and it was very polarized early on because of all the, the negative publicity, much misinformation associated with the spotted owl and the rhetoric that made people believe that an endangered species listing would mean the government would move in, take control of your property, which is not true. But nonetheless, many people felt that way. Bears do not relocate readily without trying to go back to where they came from. The only exception to that is if you can move an adult female with newborn cubs. Her maternal instinct overpowers her homing instinct and she will not abandon those cubs and she will stay where you put them. In most cases, sometimes as the cubs get bigger and are more mobile, she may move back towards the area, but in almost all cases she stays where you put her. <clears throat> so that whole process of establishing a new bear population, which we did between 2001 and 2009, moving uh, something like 92 adult females and 104 cubs uh, over those years from the Tensile River National Wildlife Refuge to the Three Rivers Wildlife Management Area, the Red River Wildlife Management Area, and the Lake Ophelia National Wildlife Refuge in Lower Concordia and Eastern Oil Parish, and established a population there. Because one of the criteria for delisting was two viable populations and a corridor and evidence of bears moving between those populations. So we, what we did was basically establish population between the upper Point Capee population, which was already established, and the tensile population was already established to basically cut in half the distance that those bears were going to have to travel to show you had movement between two populations. So it was designed to speed up recovery. Bears are really cool animals to start off with. And you cannot work with bears without becoming enamored by bears. In my opinion, they're just remarkable animals, very intelligent. Uh, very good mothers, uh, just, I mean, just a cool 
viability, you would have to restore habitat. But it really led to a greater conservation mindset of, and, and movement. So, Well, I think it was a model for a number of other uh, species restoration efforts. In many cases, it was uh, like the carnivore blue butterfly up in, in uh, Wisconsin, for instance. They used a similar model uh, and were very proactive and was very much funded by the timber industry. They headed off a listing by getting very proactive in doing things uh, to help, you know, help the butterfly. Mm -hmm. And that was an effort. And, and, and actually one of the big things that came out of our efforts were uh, changes to the Endangered Species Act to make it more user-friendly. Helping educate people about the natural world because one of the things, and, and I have a son that's getting ready to go in a wildlife policy, and what I, you know, why I push that is wildlife is the indicator, primary indicator for the quality of life on this planet. When you start seeing species in trouble, you need to really pay attention because there's something going on, even though it's on a small scale now, that ultimately, if we continue to allow these these species to get into trouble and, and habitat issues, water quality issues, air quality issues, whatever it is. Ultimately, it's us, humans, that are going to be the ones that have to deal with it because we're the species that, that that's going to, you know, affect ultimately. So you got to pay attention. A sign of a healthy forest means that there is a Louisiana black bear population in it. It may not be obvious, you may not see it on a regular basis, but if there's bear habitat that's uh, accommodating and you can support a bear population, then you're doing a good job in maintaining your bottomland hardwood forest area. Um, and there's a lot of incentives to protect that kind of land. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at Quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of IPF Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.